Now, I actually want to lead us through a number of chapters in Genesis so that we can gain a fuller understanding of what is being asked of Abraham by the time we get to Genesis chapter 2. We first learn of or we first hear of Abraham, and, and he's named Abram at this point in the scripture in chapter 11 of Genesis. We learn that Abram's homeland is in Ur of the Chaldeans and that his wife's name is Sarah. And in order that we might understand the extraordinary nature of the promises that God will make to Abraham and his wife, we are told in chapter 11 that Sarah was barren. Chapter 12 then begins with the Lord speaking to Abraham saying, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. Now the Lord is promising a great deal here. But he is also asking a great deal. I don't expect that Abraham would have been eager to leave the comforts of his homeland, to travel across the Arabian desert to an unknown land and presumably a less desirable land than what he had currently called home. And of course, imagine the difficulty of leaving friends and family behind. Uh, I had this experience, of course, when I came to Nassau four years ago. Though it is my great delight to be here and to live here, I can tell you that the act of leaving your homeland, the act of leaving friends and family behind, is a very difficult thing. And yet this is exactly what God commanded Abraham to do. We read in chapter 12, Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. So it didn't matter what was convenient, it didn't matter what was easiest to do, Abram clearly had an appetite to do what the Lord commanded, so he went forth, just as God had directed him. Now here's the other variable I want you to keep in mind. Now I talk about how difficult it was for me to leave my homeland, the land of my birth, and to come here four years ago. Well, in some senses, it was an easy move, and we were at a stage in our life and a, and a level of, of fitness, if you will, where coming here wasn't all that taxing. I was 37 years of age when I moved here. And I mention that only to contrast it with Abraham, who was 75 when he was called to leave his homeland. I imagine that if I lived 75 years in Canada, and then God said, Bryn, I need you to go to Nassau, it would be an even more difficult thing to do. 75 years in his homeland, and God calls Abram away. Of course, Abraham and Sarah are beyond childbearing years, and yet they are given this promise that the two of them will be the founders of a new and great nation. So how is it that this elderly couple that's going to leave their homeland, childless at the time, are going to father a new and great nation? Well, what we can see clearly in this is this. God's calling upon a person. And I'm thinking of His calling on my life, His calling on your life. 
God's calling upon a person and his subsequent providence does not always follow predictable patterns. This is very important because I think many of us, we try to map out our life. We try to map out a career path, a financial path. We've got a game plan for what we want our life to look like. And I want to caution you that while that may be prudent in your own management of affairs, God does not always work in that way. We can see in this story of Abraham and Sarah that God's calling upon people and His providence in their life does not follow predictable patterns. So what that means for us is sometimes we need to set aside that which makes most sense to us. And instead submit to what God has said. We need to set aside what we might think is most logical and most reasonable. And just do as God has commanded. Uh, The proverb that comes to mind is Proverbs 3 verse 5. And many of you know it. This is what's being asked here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on what? Your own understanding. In all your ways you acknowledge him and he makes straight your paths. This is such an important lesson. I used to think that I made my path straight. I thought that I carved out a road for myself. But I now know from scripture and from experience that the best thing I can do for myself is get out of the way and let God make my paths straight. This is what Abraham did. Abraham let God make the straight path for his life. Abraham obeyed God. Not because the commissioning made sense to him, but he obeyed God because he believed that God knew what was best. He knew that God could be trusted with his life. He knew that God had the power and the capacity to fulfill that which he had promised. So of course, I'm presenting Abraham to you as an example of a man with great faith. But I think it's also important that we notice that Abraham, like many of us, perhaps all of us, Abraham experienced seasons where his faith in the promises of God wavered. So if you've ever had your faith in God waver, I want to encourage you and explain to you that you are in good company. Abraham had seasons in his life where his faith wavered. We see this, for example, in Genesis chapter 15. He verbalizes his doubt and his frustration to God, asking, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. You have given me no children... And so a servant in my house will be my heir. Abraham must have trusted God to leave his homeland. But he's struggling to trust God when we get to chapter 15. But I think it's interesting how God replies to him. God could have said, come on Abraham, what's happened to you? What happened to the faithful Abram that left Ur of the Chaldeans? What happened to that faithful Abraham who trusted in me and didn't lean on his own understanding? What happened? But God doesn't do that. He says, Abraham, this man shall not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. 
God graciously repeats his promise. The text specifies that God then took Abraham outside and said, Look up to the heavens. Count those stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. I'm so encouraged that God could have used this season of doubt as an opportunity to reprimand Abraham. But instead, a gracious God repeats the promise and basically says, Don't worry. We're still on plan. You're still going to father a great nation. Recognizing that our faith is often weak and frail, God repeats His promise. God repeats His promise that He is in control and He has our best interests in hand. Now if you read on from there, you'll see that Abraham's faith in God's promises would again waver and would again need propping up. And it isn't surprising when you consider how long Abraham had to wait before Sarah got pregnant with Isaac and Isaac was born. You you follow along from Genesis 11 and you see that Isaac isn't born until 25 years after God promised a son to Abraham. So if you're doing the math, you'll see that the scripture tells us explicitly that Abraham was how old when Isaac was born? A hundred years of age. Now sometimes, you you know, we'll see an older father, someone who became a father for the first time at 50 or 55, and they'll say, oh, he became a father at an older age. Well, that's nothing compared to Abraham, who became a father for the very first time at the age of a hundred. Now, if I'm Abraham, I'm thinking this through. Finally, Isaac is born, and Abraham would have been to settle in with great satisfaction, knowing that God had delivered on this very extraordinary promise, and Abraham's life was unfolding finally, just as he had hoped it would. He would have had great satisfaction and peace. Until that day when God made a terrifying request of Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'm going to tell you about. Kill your son is the straight translation. I don't even know how to categorize that request for you. Sacrifice your son? Kill your son? Isaac was the culmination of all that God had promised to Abraham. Abraham waited 25 years for Isaac to be born. And we can deduce from the texts that follow that Isaac would have been about 13 or 14 by the time chapter 2 comes around. So he waited 25 years for Isaac, born to him at age 100. Then he gets to live with Isaac as his son for 13 or 14 years. And yet there is no sense of hesitation on Abraham's part. 
We see in the text that he got up early the next morning. He split some wood for the offering. I really want to see what people were like in those days. Splitting wood at 113 years of age? I don't want to split wood at the age of 41. But I, I guess the physiology of folks was different then. I don't quite understand it, but I take God at his word. We have a 113-year-old man splitting some wood. He's getting ready the offering, and he's traveling to the appointed mountain. When they arrived, Abraham then said to his servants, and I don't think he was putting them on, I think he was verbalizing his faith in God. He says, stay here with the donkey while uh, I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. We will come back to you. So Abraham clearly believes that whatever God has in mind, this is still going to work out and that they're going to come back to the servants at the end of the sacrifice. We then read, and this makes sense to me, Isaac's 113, so who carries the wood? Isaac carries the wood. you got a 13-year-old right with you, you're 113, you give the wood to the boy. So Isaac, we're told, carries the wood for the sacrifice. And then on the way to the mountain, they're walking together, Isaac asks the most relevant question that a 13-year-old boy could ask his father in such a scenario. He says, Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? To which Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Well, having just declared that the Lord will provide the lamb, we then read in the very next verse that Abraham bound Isaac to the altar. Now I hope you're not just letting these words just gloss over you. I, I hope you're thinking with me or picturing with me the scene. It says that Abraham tied up his son to the altar. Now I don't know where your mind goes, but my mind goes to ask the question, how did Isaac get on the altar? Because as far as I can tell, there's only two ways Isaac gets on the altar. The first way is voluntarily. The first way is voluntarily, Isaac just gets on the altar, he lies down, his father ties him up. The second scenario, which is not pretty to picture, is this 113-year-old Abraham wrestling his son Isaac onto the altar. Forcing him onto the altar and tying him up there. Now those are the two scenarios. There's a third, you can speak to me about it afterwards. I only see two. And given Abraham's advanced age, given that he's around 113, given that Isaac was an able-bodied teenager, my best guess is that Isaac lied down voluntarily. That Isaac put himself on the altar all on his own. Which leads me to believe that Abraham must have been a very persuasive communicator. Abraham would have had to persuade his son that even though this doesn't look good with the fire and the offering and the knives and everything, Abraham would have had to make a compelling case that even though he's going to be bound to this altar with knives and fire, that everything was going to turn out fine. And then the other question I wonder about as I read this story is that if this was a test, if this was only a test, 
Why did God let the test go on for so long? I mean, how far do you need Abraham to go before you regard him as faithful? Because Abraham has been faithful every step of the way. Sacrifice your son. Okay, let's get up early. Okay, let's split some wood. Let's get the donkeys and the servants. Let's get everything we need. Let's go to the appointed mountain, just as we are told. I'm bringing Isaac. I didn't try to bring anyone else. I brought the one that you wanted. And God lets everything continue. Why doesn't He intervene? Why doesn't He say, okay, good job. you've, You've passed the test. But God waits and waits and waits. Waits to the point that Isaac's on the altar. Waits to the point when Isaac's tied up. Waits to the point when Abraham grabs a knife and is prepared to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy. Abraham then raises his eyes. Just then. Didn't happen earlier. Didn't happen 20 minutes earlier. During the wrestling match or the debate. He just raises his eyes and he sees a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. So Abraham takes the ram and offers him up for a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham calls the name of the place Jehovah Jireh which means the Lord will provide. Now, I don't know where your mind goes when you hear a biblical account like this, because it's extraordinary. It's one of a kind. To say it's highly unusual is an understatement. If you were to only read the account of God testing Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis, if you only read of Abraham readying to sacrifice his son, you might be tempted to conclude that God is cruel and that Abraham is absolutely out of his mind. If the purpose of God's command to sacrifice Isaac is merely to test Abraham's faith, we might be justified in calling this the cruelest test in human history. However, If we read this account with all of salvation history in view, we may see that something far greater than a test is taking place here. What do I mean? I think it was Augustine who once said of the two covenants, the new covenant is in the old contained. And the old covenant is in the new explained. In other words, this hugely unusual story from Genesis chapter 2 won't make any sense to us until we place it in the context of a New Testament explanation. What's the grand purpose of this account? Why does God say to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him? The grand purpose of this account was to foreshadow a day 
when God the Father would sacrifice His only beloved Son for the salvation of His people. The number of common elements between what we find in Genesis 22 and what we have in the death of Christ, the number of common elements is striking. First of all, and this, this one is it's an amazing one, and it's impossible to verify precisely, but it's, it's amazing nonetheless. Biblical commentators tell us that the location of Mount Moriah is very, very close to the exact same hill on which Jesus was crucified. Most biblical commentators say you could at least see the hill that Jesus was crucified on from Mount Moriah. Some commentators say it's the same hill. Some commentators in their research, as best as they can tell, the exact place where Isaac was bound to the altar is the exact place where the Son of God was offered up as a sacrifice for sin. That's just one striking element. Then we have another, it's a minor striking element. You have Isaac carrying the wood that would potentially be his place of execution. So the wood on which he might die if he were to be sacrificed. And then you have Jesus similarly bearing the wood of his own execution. Linguistically, there is even a connection. And this part gives me goosebumps. My favorite connection comes when Isaac asks the question of his father, Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? That's a striking question when you consider the very first thing out of John the Baptist's mouth when he sees Jesus. Isaac asks, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Many, many, many years later, John the Baptist answers, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The last connection I'd like to make or highlight is the substitution that takes place. The substitution that takes place. In order for Isaac to live, in order for the covenant to continue, a substitute sacrifice needs to be provided. Accordingly, Isaac is spared death, and a ram caught in a thicket by its horns is offered as a substitute sacrifice in Isaac's place. And that first substitution foreshadows the day when Jesus would be our substitute. It foreshadows a scenario whereby we deserve to be uh, killed for our sins. But one steps forward as our substitute to die in our place. What do you mean, pastor, that we're to be killed for our sins? Well, the scriptures record in a rather detailed and sometimes graphic way humanity's persistent rebellion against God. Particularly read through the Old Testament. And one of the main themes you'll see is the persistent rebellion of humanity against God. 
And unfortunately, it's not hard to look around to see that this pattern has persisted to present day. We haven't gotten any better. We're still in rebellion against God and His ways. Now, we might be tempted to downplay the seriousness of our sin. We might want to look around and identify the more heinous sins that we see in others and conclude, well, in comparison to him or to her, I'm not all that bad. Nevertheless, my guilt caused by sin remains. Your guilt remains. We all stand guilty before a God who is holy, holy, holy. The law of God convicts me. My own conscience convicts me. I am guilty. I have disregarded the creator of the universe. I have tried to play God with my life. I've tried to be the master of my own destiny. I've tried to be in control. And in doing so, I've committed cosmic treason against my maker. And the penalty for my rebellion, the penalty for your rebellion, is death. We learn that from Paul, who said to the Romans that the wages of sin is death. We think of wages as a good thing, but strictly speaking, wages is the thing that you deserve for doing something. The wages of sin is death. The verdict against us has been rendered and our predicament is dire. So now we need something to atone for our sin. We need something to take away the guilty verdict. And as the author of Hebrews tells us, the sacrifice of animals won't do it. We can sacrifice lamb after goat after ram after lamb after goat, and that will not take away our sins. The author of Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. In other words, to atone for our sin, to atone for your sin, you need more than a lamb. You need more than a million lambs. You need more than all the lambs this world has. We need the lamb. We need Jesus, the Son of God, to be our substitute. If you found the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac to be unsettling, terrifying, you're in good company. This story makes no sense to any reasonable mind until you place this story in the context of the New Testament. The story of Abraham and Isaac only makes sense in the shadow of the cross. And Isaac's question leads us there. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And it is my great privilege to stand before you this morning. And to tell you that Isaac's ancient question has been answered. And it means life for us. Behold the Lamb of God.
who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.